Hello, this is Michael Shapiro, and welcome to Interplay, Conversations in Music. Today, I have the great joy of, of not going to Chicago. Well, that's not great joy, but every year I go to Chicago to the Midwest Clinic to meet these five wonderful people. And this year, I can't do it because it's been postponed, we'll put it that way, until 2021 December, where we're all going to go out for steak dinner and have drinks. So I, I really am so pleased to say hello to these wonderful conductors, Sarah McCoyne from Texas Tech, Robert Carnahan from University of Miami, Albert Wynn from the University of Memphis, Dave Keeler, I just screwed up on alphabetical order, David Keeler from Kennesaw State in Georgia, and Mr. Kevin Sedatol from Michigan State University in the great state of Michigan. And I thank you all for joining me. And uh, instead of going to a wonderful steak restaurant in Chicago, we're all meeting this way. You know, I wanted to talk to you about many, many things today. Geography, the demands of university culture, band building, choice of repertoire, next generations, hope. These are kind of my subjects. But this is a freewheeling kind of conversation with five wonderful friends and people I deeply respect. Now, I come from a different world, as you know, I started out in so-called classical music in New York and the opera world in Europe. I've conducted professional orchestras in England and uh, here in the United States, and sometimes as a resident in your places have conducted your uh, wind ensembles with great joy, and I've enjoyed those residencies. One of the great regrets I have right now is not being able to go around the, the country and the world seeing you all instead of just Chicago. But we'll get through this together. So I wanted to talk about geography, and I want to talk first with Sarah, if I may. And Sarah, I'm very curious, frankly, of geography. You've been in Texas Tech and Lubbock, Texas for quite a while. But you're not from Texas originally, are you? I am not. Whereabouts? I grew up in the Midwest, in Indiana and Michigan. So tell me what's different musically from your background. I know you went to University of Texas at Austin for your studies and other places. But what's different about being there where you are now musically? Well, the music culture in Texas is different than it is in uh, a lot of other places in the country. And um, I was fortunate to grow up in very good places. I grew up in Carmel, Indiana, uh, that had a very, very strong music culture and was in the youth orchestra and that sort of thing. Went to Michigan, which also has a strong public school sort of experience, and then went to college in Michigan. And in between that and then getting to Texas, um, I think it's pretty well known that Texas has a really remarkable um, system of music education and training young musicians. And so some of the differences in, from what I've seen from other places that I've taught in Texas is really, it starts at the very top with the infrastructure that are given to uh, school systems in terms of staff and support for the way that they support the arts and teaching. Now, one of your um, former Texas Tech friends, and I know he's a friend of yours, just got $503 million. That wasn't from, me. <laughs> from the Chiefs to continue. And uh, it's really quite something. 
I've spoken to some of you who are, you're all in big universities with big football teams. And I want to ask you, um, uh, next to um, Kevin Setetal, who's at Michigan State, Maestro, is it, if not for football, would you not have the great band program you've got as director of bands? Um, that's a good question. I've never even thought about that, but it's possible. It's possible that Sarah wouldn't have the same program either if it weren't for football. Now, the other guys, that's different. <laughs> Some of them have great programs in spite of football, but <laughs> but that you know, our started with um uh, with a you know military-based band that played for, uh, you know, the sporting uh, events and other kind of you know occasions that the university needed, um, like outdoor music, basically. But it's it all came out of ROTC units, which many of many programs did across the country. So I never even thought about it that way. It's possible. I I I hope that's not the case, but it's it's. Because in the Big Ten and uh, a lot of the other big conferences, the you know we are very very tied to athletics. And I think uh, it, yeah, financially, though, this is where I'm going. The funding of schools. I mean, I went to Juilliard and the Manus College of Music uh, previously while I was at Columbia College, and obviously I could just imagine what the Juilliard football team would have looked like. <laughs> but you know, I have spoken to some of your confreres and sisters in the business that you're in. And the fact that football has been there has been something that has funded the band programs to a certain extent. Now, I'm interested with the Frost uh, School of Music because that, to me, is fascinating because that's similar somewhat to my background of being at um, Juilliard. And I'm, this question is really for Robert Carnahan, uh, director of bands down in Miami. Um, I'm not that familiar with sports in Miami, but I know that you have a very vibrant conservatory, and it's known as one of the great conservatories of the country. Um, now, band music in conservatories is somewhat different than it is, isn't it, uh, from the schools that have big marching bands. I mean, Sarah's got 400, or Jerry's Junkin's got, I don't know, six, 700 people. <laughs> What's it like down there in Florida? <clears throat> Well, uh, first off, uh, honestly, we're not a conservatory. Um, there was a short period of history uh, that the that the School of Music, before it was known, known as a School of Music, was a conservatory. <clears throat> but we're just a School of Music, um, which is housed, obviously, within the larger university. Um, <clears throat> football is big. You know, Miami's had its heyday in, in athletics. Um, the marching band is a robust group of people. It's not a huge group um, like the schools in Texas and Michigan uh, and Georgia, but it's got its own personality and its own life, uh, and it is well supported by the athletic department and the upper administration. You, you do have a great orchestra, too, because I know my friend <clears throat> Gerard Schwartz is now there, and I was thrilled when he joined you uh, because Jerry Us is— Us, too. I mean, my God, but— the, the, the composition <clears throat> I've gone through the whole structure of the school and I, yeah. it's fascinating to me plus I spent every summer in my in Miami Beach when my grandparents lived there for like 10 years 
So right. I have a feeling. David Keeler, I have a question for you. Um, I'm curious about university culture. Uh, and it's very different from what I experienced in the so-called you know, professional orchestra world and chamber music and opera and so forth. But when I visited you in Kennesaw and gone into the school and taught kids and been throughout the whole situation, I mean, some people have been saying I should start talking about you know universities in the era of COVID-19. And I don't want to do that today. We've all been through it. And I was through it personally, as you all know. So the question is, University culture now for a state like a state university like Kennesaw uh, in music, do you, do you see any immediate changes where this is all going? In related to COVID? In related to COVID as a kind of a linchpin or a change in where we are. I mean, I have seen it from some other people in your industry that I've been talking to, but do you have it's... any particular Georgian response? Well, I can I can speak about what we're experiencing here right now. We're, you know, we're 30 miles north of downtown Atlanta. We're a suburb of the Atlanta metropolitan area. So we're a very big county in Cobb County with a school that's grown 20,000 kids in the last 10 years. So we're a big school of almost 40,000 students. Um, our school is actually growing right now, even through COVID. We have a record number of music students coming into the School of Music right this year. Um, I, in fact, have a horn player who's coming to KSU instead of going to the San Francisco Conservatory this fall because they don't, they fear it's going to be online. And if they're from this area, they're going to stay here and save some money and take advantage of the cost of going but to California school. has a better governor than you do. <laughs> I will make no comment on that that's here. True. <laughs> Speaking from the outside, that's absolutely true. Well, we won't talk about your governor either. <laughs> Please. Uh, if we start talking about it, it's going to turn dark. So. It'll turn dark. But yeah. but I think in the short term, it's going to be a lot. Diff it's going to be different for lots of places. Um, I think we're going to be a beneficiary of this of this challenge because we're a very affordable public institution with a very in a in a nice area, and I think there are going to be people that choose to stay closer to home. One of the challenges I've had in the past, if kids leave to go elsewhere, I do worry for all of us in public education and in the arts in particular with the, the long-term implications of this and funding. Um, and I, I, I worry for all of us to have funding and support in the future. I think it's a big problem. I want to shift to uh, repertoire a little bit. First, Albert and uh, Wynn of University of Memphis, and then shift back to uh, Kevin Sedatel. Um Albert, you and I had the most incredible experience. I first met you because of an agent I had in the South who introduced me to you about my Frankenstein score, which you conducted with the band and the band version that I, had, that I had conducted with the Dallas Winds. Now, what I find very interesting is that when I went down to see you the first time, we were talking because I love, you know, I grew up with Louis Armstrong and the great jazz musicians, seeing them live in New York, Coleman Hawkins, it's a long list. But I also am very interested in blues, and we started talking about your love of blues and the love of memphis blues that you have being an arkansas boy so i went to beale street on your recommendation and i hung out with blind mississippi morris who is the greatest what they call harp player in the world harmonica player and he's blind and he's overweight and he's got a beautiful wife by the name of harmony you cannot make this stuff up and he plays in a rib joint where i had ribs and beer and chicken southern style and listened to this genius the great thing that happened was 
I brought him to school like two or three years later, and he appeared not only uh, with your band but with your players, and we had rehearsals, and we got him an award from the mayor. That was, And I wrote a piece, you know, Old Mississippi Sings the Blues, which you premiered, and Dave Keeler also played, for band, specifically for band, incorporating the ethos of a night with Blind Mississippi Morris. So that was one example of expansion of repertoire from organically from the community. Where do you want to go with the organic growth of the band repertoire for music that is written for band from the people? What do you see, what do you see going for with this? Because I see a change. Um, well, yeah, there's a huge change. Um, I think a lot of it is directly related to what we're seeing right now. Um, we're going to see a major change in how small bands uh, operate because we're having amazing composers writing flex pieces for the ensemble now. Um, composers who at one point may not have been accessible to smaller schools because we're forced in this uh, small chamber-like uh, weird, funky instrumentation. Um, this is a, 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 a hole that is getting filled in a very meaningful way. Um, with the idea that uh, we have a large number of, of, of disenfranchised uh, people amongst us, disenfranchised humans, uh, which means their music is suppressed, their voices are suppressed. Um, we're starting to see courage uh, within composers and courage within conductors to ask for all of this to come out. Um, I don't, and then I don't mean to say that this is unique to me, not necessarily, uh, because I think other people feel about, feel, perhaps feel the same way about who they are, where they've come from. Um, but for, for me personally, what this has done, it's, it's forced me to figure out who I am, um, and what right. culture identifies me, what music I identifies understand. me. I understand. And that's uh, something a lot of people are reaching for. Right. And, and I think... I can't be the only one that feels this way, you know, you know? teaching in Memphis, my African-American students, some of them think that we're supposed to learn music one way and, mm -hmm. and, and to learn it the classical, classical European way really puts them off. You know, we lose majors sometimes because they think that we're trying to force them into a, a, a peg that they, a hole that they don't fit. And then, you know, you, I'm, I'm looking around and I see my students on, on their TikToks and on their Instagrams and, and they're improvising way better than I could possibly imagine. They have uh, all sorts of talents that if we would just look at them a little more closely and ask them what else they do besides Western classical music, we would discover that we sort of misidentified what musical talent is. Well, we did that with uh, Blind Mississippi Morris where the kids were riffing with him. Right. And so it's, 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 you know, I would say that that was a really big moment for me to hear a, a person like Blind Mississippi Morris talk about performing passionate music with B.B. King, performing with Howlin' Wolf, playing right. next to our students and, and saying, I want to teach you about music. And the only way you're going to do it is to sit next to me and play it. And, and they did. Yeah. And remember, remember in the rehearsal when they started, this is interesting for all the, ma the maestri here that they were very scared. And then he says, do this, do that. And then boom, they jumped in. Right. Kevin said it all. I want to switch now to a whole nother subject. And it is writing for the band. 
from someone experienced in this as a composer, 10 years ago, I will tell you, I did not know how to write for band. I grew up in orchestral music at Juilliard and Manus and, you know, Leopold Stokowski and Leonard Bernstein and Herbert von Karajan. These were my people in my early days going to concerts, New York Philharmonic. But when I started writing for band, and now I have a good number of band pieces, I realized with the help of some of the people that are talking to us today <laughs> that it's a different perspective. Vincent Persichetti was my teacher, Divertimento, you all know, and, you know, the Fifth Symphony, so forth. And Vincent was one of the early people, maybe Percy Granger before him, that realized that writing for band is a different instrument. Writing for wind ensemble is a different way of going. The, not only the combinations, but the, just the way the instruments work. I'm sure you've given thought to this. So I want to know where you are now with this in response to pieces that you get, because you must get dozens of things. Where do you come out with all of this? What would you tell composers that may be watching this, and there will be people, what they should be looking for? What should they do? Well, we all get, we all get new music every, well, maybe not now, but when things were normal, um, every single week we're getting, maybe every day we're getting something new. Um, I, I would differ with, um, you, you already knew how to write for band. You just didn't realize it. <laughs> Take the strings away and you were writing for band. That's, that's, that's the whole point behind Fennell's movement towards wind ensemble, um, was, was for, for clarity's sake. And, and so musicians felt more valid in what they were doing instead of sitting in, a large symphonic band of where there were 24 clarinets where you could be playing, you know, Mozart in the middle of something else and no one would ever know. Um, so it, honestly, I really think it's more about what people's um, connotation of band was. Oh, that's the big band that plays in the gazebo at the park, you know, and they play marches and overtures and polka and novelty kind of music, particularly East Coast people. I'm sorry. Bill, it's just <laughs> there just aren't a lot. There were not a ton of uh, public school bands on the East Coast. It just didn't exist. We had the Goldman Band. You know, that's what we had in New York as a so-called professional band. But but there's a long there's a lot of time before the Goldman Band ever happened that right. people's influence in terms of what band would be considered. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, all of the all of the New York composers have that same idea. I mean, we we've all played Corleano's music, and his you know he had no idea about band, and and just pretty much had to be forced into writing for it, or someone else had to write it for him That's until right. he understood. Oh, this is not as difficult as I'm making it out to be. I just don't know what some of these instruments are. That's part of the problem, you know. How do you write for a saxophone? How do you write for a euphonium player? You know, I, I, know. And I don't know the ranges of all of this. Like, you know, that can all be dealt with. John's but, a close, close friend. I was with him in the premiere of uh, Circus Maximus at Carnegie Hall. And uh, afterwards, we went to dinner. A small group. Jerry was not with us because he had to be with the kids. And I remember John saying, they rehearsed. They knew yeah. their parts. 
And this is a guy that I've been with with major orchestras. We're very good friends, and he comes back and wants to shoot himself because it wasn't properly rehearsed. Yeah. So, but you know, you guys rehearse and you learn your parts, which is for us composers, it's a dream. Yeah. Almost every major composer that I've worked with, that's the same story. Like, yeah. no, I remember Bill Bolcom sitting in rehearsal. And he goes, "You have no idea, right? How much this is appreciated by composers that oh, you we got. do, we yeah. do." He said, you know, on the totem pole, we are at the bottom in the right. world. And yeah. he's like, well, that it's we don't exist without you guys, and you don't exist without us. So um, it's the, you are in the generation of the building of the repertoire. And I want to speak to Robert Carnahan next, if I may, and then I'll shift to Sarah. Um, Robert, I'm curious down in Miami, which is a I know it very, very well. It's a cosmopolitan area with a large South American uh, mm -hmm. people going back to when I was a kid. And I had to learn mm -hmm. Espanol in order to you know, survive. It was kind of an Espanol Yiddish, which was very interesting in my case, in Miami Beach yeah. in, in the early days. And that's before Miami Beach was cool. Do, <laughs> do you, Some might not say it's cool right now. but Not anymore. <laughs> It, it was cool, and then it wasn't cool. But I, I'm curious about Miami, because the city of Miami is a distinctly cool place, enjoying a tremendous wealth, and the question of global warming is very much on everybody's mind there. But I'm curious, in that kind of metropolitan area, which is different from some of these other folks on this uh, on this uh, podcast, other than Memphis, perhaps, um, are there special needs in a place like Miami where you have that South American influx and a very sophisticated, driven kind of culture, a very financial culture, too? And a yeah, culture. It, it, it's a very fun culture. Uh, and the diversity is greater here than any other place I've lived in my life. Um, and that brings with it, I think, a lot of challenges because it is hard to cater to a certain culture because there are so many different certain cultures. Yes. Um, Certainly the culture of South America is alive and well. Um, there's a lot to do in Miami and there are a lot of organizations that are trying to find their own niche. Um, so the audience is being pulled in many, many, many different ways. Right. Um, so it's difficult to actually uh, attract and cultivate an audience, uh, I think in the city because mm -hmm. of all of those factors. Um, repertoire certainly can help drive that and help build that. Um, and that's something that uh, I and my colleagues at the school want to do more of and in getting into South America and bringing some of that music to this, to this region more. There are some schools uh, up north that are bringing in people from Asia primarily, and this is cynically said, because of money, because of contributions uh, from Asian countries, particularly China, I've seen that with uh, other schools here. You're talking, what I'd like to hear is what you're saying is a more organic response. Uh, if I can switch to Sarah McCoyne, please. Sarah, I'm just curious of anything at this point, you, you've been through this a while, although you're considerably younger than I am, is next generations, where what you're considering imparting to the children, young adults, we're now going through a really radical transformation time when they come back to see you whenever it is this coming fall or spring. What are you going to impart to them that might be a little different? 
I'm not sure I have anything different, but I definitely feel um, more appreciation. I think they feel more appreciation. The thing that uh, struck me when the whole COVID thing hit um, was how much they wanted to be together. A lot of people just sort of stopped seeing their ensembles and we met. And even if it was to talk, we were kind of figuring out crowdsourced how to get together. But the overall arch of that to me was very apparent that they want to be together and they want to make music and they want to create. Um, a couple of weeks, I, a couple of weeks ago, I reached out to everybody and said, Hey, um, if you want to get on and just chat, you can, I had probably about 20 kids show up just to hang out and talk. They want to be together and they want to perform. And so, um, I think embracing that this is in a weird way, I haven't worked through it yet, but it's, it's allowing me to think a little bit differently about performance. It's making me think about performance, what's relevant to them. We've talked about the diversity. That's one thing. And what other ways do they find relevant that we can help them with in terms of other goals of uh, performance or different goals of performance than we might be accustomed to and just a large ensemble experience. And so I've been wrestling with those sorts of things for actually what we're going to do in the fall and, the, and probably the spring as well. Um, but it's been a little bit freeing in a way to be able to think that way. Um, Thinking out of the box. Yeah, yeah trying. And, um, and I think for them, at least my students, they, you know, sometimes I say people make fun of Lubbock and all that stuff, but it's, uh, great if skies. You, if, great skies. But if you get them, you got them. And, right. and they're, they want, to be together and they want to learn they want to do all those things and they don't have the they don't have all the temptations that miami has you know so if you get them you got them and you can create a different kind of culture and it's an opportunity that we have together and the fact that they want to that's what i want to be able to capitalize on to figure out how we can be relevant to I them understand. and give back while moving forward well i'm curious of dave keeler at this point david um musically I've been down to your school. I had a wonderful residency there, and um, it's a great place. Um, where do you see the university going in, in, in your specific in Georgia at this point, uh, uh, making a mark for this next generation that you're working with? Well, what I've, what I've tried to do with, is ours is a very, been very quickly, it's a young school. I mean, we're the youngest school of all, all of my colleagues here, and I mean, it was a commuter college just more than a dozen, a dozen years ago. So what, what we're doing uh, in, in music, um, I've tried to take advantage of where we're located. Um, in the Atlanta metropolitan area, we've actually become partners with the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. Uh, many of the ASO principal wind players are our teachers. That's great. Uh, our students get, get very, we all get discounted tickets. So I've taken advantage of all the things Bob Spano has done with the Atlanta Composer Project. And when I hear pieces by Christopher Theophanides or Jennifer Higdon or Michael Gandolfi, these are composers I eventually brought into to my students and connected with. Two of the three are uh, very good friends. <laughs> yeah, and so I've commissioned a couple of them, done premieres, and it's always completely terrifying. It's it, When I look at all the things I've tried to do here, 
those are the things I'm most proud of um, and, and creating those opportunities. And I, I've been able to do it simply because of where we're located and the opportunities that of trying to connect my school to the city and to the Atlanta Symphony and all those players and, and composers. One of the things that just happened that, that I was hoping to do is I heard a piece a year and a half ago that, that the ASO did premiered by this young composer in Australia. His name is Alex Turley. He's only 24, 23, he's in grad school. And he wrote this chamber-esque piece for a combination of winds and strings, but it was really more of a winds piece. So I just Googled him and found out he was a really young person and um, asked if he'd like to write his first band piece. And, if, and of course he's excited and we were gonna do it, but funding ran out this year. COVID funds got pulled. I mean, all the money got pulled for the university. So that's on a hold. Um, and and this is kind of what we've all done. I mean, I looked at I my know. friends it's and colleagues old. here. And, and, and I just hope that when our lives resume, hopefully a year from now, we can get back to creating art with new, fresh, exciting voices and diverse voices and whatever our communities serve, trying to find more of those original uh, artists to connect with our students. You know, originally when I started, I got sick really early in this whole cycle. And um, so for a while I was in recovery mode and it was a bad story. But, you know, people saying, aren't you writing a violin concerto? I said, yeah, but I didn't get to it because I didn't want to. And I'm not, I wasn't alone. There was a feeling of malaise. But after I got better, I jumped right back in and I'm fiercely trying to get this done now for Tim Fain. And it's feeling terrific to be back and then I have an opera to, 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 to do and other things. A composer can work now. For a performer, you have to be performing and you, as university professors, directors of bands, you have to work and get the kids moving. The last question is to Albert and then uh, I will thank everyone. Albert, if we can hear you, that would be nice. Thank you. Here we go. Hope. Let's talk about hope. Ooh, One thing... Okay. Uh, yeah, I, I've been these all of these interviews that I've been doing, and I will continue. I'm talking to somebody in Europe next week, two people in Europe, and we're talking about remembrance. We've done some of that today. We've talked about literature choices and spreading the available composers around that we want to talk to. But what do you, when I say the word hope to you, what does that mean to you musically? And as a father and husband. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's hard to boil it all down. Um, but when, when, when I think about hope musically and, and what we are doing, and I feel like what all of us in this room feel also responsible for is, that, to me, that word is my mission. Um, I, I think that all of us here are, are, are blessed with talents that allow us to communicate some things that are undescribable to other people. We are able to assemble crowds and, and, and energize them in ways that some others may not be able to. Quite clearly. And so because of, because other people have allowed us to do these things and where we are as a country and where we are as a, as a, as, as humans, the word hope becomes my mission. That's what I feel like I need to be doing, creating opportunities to bring communities back together again in a safe way, spreading the words of hope, celebrating 
the victories of our students, the victories of people in general, looking for composers who send that message, who write that message. Um, but with, with hope, I also believe in, in the idea of presenting truth. Um, because I think we can't lie about it. You know, we, we have to be truthful. And then in discovering the truth, we can find out where we go from there, which then creates more hope. I don't know if I'm answering your question. No, um, you it, have. It, in truth, me, we find, in truth, so we find hope. I love deeply that. impactful, but that's kind of, yeah. kind of where I am. Um, and that's my mission as a father. I don't want my, my, my students nor my children to feel that this is a terrible time. I can still make them smile. I can still make them happy. Well, you've made me smile. And I will tell you that um, if you would all put on your audio at this point, I will thank you. Thank Robert Carnahan, Kevin Settetol, David Keeler, Albert Wynn, and Sarah McCoy of all over the country, all of you five. This has been a great joy. Thank you for joining Interplay Conversations in Music with your host, Michael Shapiro.